Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Michael Reed Show with AirGrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Tuesday morning, the 26th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. As we speak, most children are, as you'd expect, in classrooms around the country. It's only under exceptional circumstances that a child wouldn't be in school right now. At least, that is what we thought up to yesterday when it was revealed uh, that it is normal for a group of children living in Monaghan not to go to school at all ever. As many as 30 children in Carrickmacross are bored out of their minds this morning, bored as they were yesterday morning and bored it seems as they have been over the course of the last two months. The children I'm sure want to go to school. Their parents certainly want them to go to school, but there is no place in the local school for these children. And it seems as though this has been the situation for some period of time. Perhaps it's because these children don't matter. Maybe it's because they don't have the same rights as other children. The children themselves are part of a group of 100 people who are seeking asylum in this country, living in direct provision at the M1 Hotel in Carrick-Macross. Let's hear a little bit of what Rebecca, who is a mother of three children, had to say to News Talk reporter Barry White yesterday. The, the situation was very bad from uh, where I come from, so I had to come to Ireland. So when I came to Ireland, I was taken straight to Tracy's Hotel. That's how I end up. I ended up there. I think for now it's over hundred already because they keep coming. They keep coming. Uh, I've been there for about two months now. I've got three children. The first one is fifteen-year-old girl, and a ten-year-old son, and the four-year-old son. No, they they are not schooling at the moment. I'm not sure. They keep telling us to wait. So we've been waiting from them. We don't know. We don't know. We we're still waiting from them. Rebecca from South Africa telling Barry White on News Talk yesterday how her three children don't have a school to go to and how that is the case for up to as many as 30 children in the M Hotel in Carrick-Macross and has been the case over the course of the last two months. Thomas Byrne, Fianna Fáil, TD for Meath East is his party spokesperson on education and he's on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you, Thomas Byrne, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, are these children different from any other children in terms of what their entitlements are? No, it's a simple answer than that. 
um, they're entitled to go to school in the same manner as Irish children. Uh, that's the law of the land. That's our obligations under international law. And of course, that's just common decency and humanity. So I can't understand that. But of course, there are Irish children that can't get into school as well, particularly children with special needs. So it seems to be a very casual approach from the Department of Education about the education of children, because uh, we see this with asylum seekers and we've seen it with, with children with special needs as well, where it simply doesn't seem to matter at times whether children are in school or not. Um, and I think that's very, very wrong. I think that um, the law and common decency requires us to make sure that these children have a school place uh, immediately, actually. I mean, no, if a child uh, arrives in with a family or on their own, as they do in some cases, um, I mean, no one's going to expect a school the following day, but the Department of Education has to provide a school place. You know, there's a time limit there, but, you know, that has to be done. Uh, it's simply not acceptable to leave them lying around. And by the way, it's not acceptable to say uh, that the local school doesn't have enough places. That is not a good enough reason. If that is the case, and I'm, mm. I, I don't know the situation there, the department has to provide another school. It's as simple as yeah, that. Well, uh, well, it brings us back uh, to the conversation that uh, I suppose we've been having as a, a nation because of uh, the opposition to some of uh, these direct provision centres being set up. And it, it seems to some degree uh, that there are valid arguments uh, against some of these centres in that what we have is a building, but we don't have the services surrounding that building. Well, I'm afraid that the government is required by law to provide the services and yeah. education is one of those services that they're required to provide. I mean, this isn't something that is optional or we'll just be nice about. They yeah. are legally required to do it. So so it's as simple as that. If they're planning to put uh, asylum uh, reception centres in a particular locality, mm. then they have to make sure that the services are there. If they put 30 children there, they have to have a school. It is as simple as well, that. Well, they have an no obligation way. to the 30 children. They have an obligation to the children or to the parents of uh, the 30 children and they have a, an obligation uh, to the community at large, don't they? They do, but there's a right to it. Like, I mean, you know, when, when you're in the Department of Education, I mean, you have to look at what what, what are we required by law mm. to do with the country runs on laws and they're required to provide an education for those children. I mean, that is just, that's the bottom line. There mm. are no ifs or buts about that. So they have to do it. And if they're going to put... Uh, a lot of asylum uh, seekers on a temporary basis and hopefully not a prolonged basis in Carrick Macross. That's the biggest problem with direct provision at the minute. It's just the length of it. Uh, they, they have to provide an education. And uh, now, if there are circumstances where they cannot uh, get them into a local school or there's no mm. uh, provision, then they're going to have to employ teachers to go into the reception centre or something. But mm. they have to get an education. And the truth is that that, that would only be a stopgap because the, the education has to be um, of, of like... Uh, exactly what, what an Irish child gets. That's simply mm. what we have to do. There's no, but, but of course they do. <laughs> I mean, there's no point well, in even asking... Well, someone clearly doesn't doesn't accept that or hasn't done anything about it when these children are left like that. I mean, that's that's the frightening thing about this. Yeah, well, yeah. Somebody uh, has been has has just said, oh, that doesn't matter or we'll deal with this another day. Or we haven't thought about it or whatever it is. Or these children don't matter. Yeah, well, unfortunately they do. Well, not unfortunately, but they do. Like, I mean, unfortunately for that person. Well, of course uh, they or matter. Or whoever is responsible, yeah. they do matter. Mm. And it's it's not simply, I'm going on here about refugee law and international law, but it's, it's simply our, our common decency, humanity, uh, that we make sure that those mm. children are educated. It's not those children's fault uh, that they're here. Mm. Um, they are here and we have to deal with the situation that presents itself. And that means an education for those children. And I just cannot understand and why that would not be treated as top priority. We've, we've, I, I, an issue I've raised in the doll, and I wish the government would do something mm. with this as well, is the impact of homelessness on education mm-hmm. uh, for children. And we know that children that are displaced from the family homes, Irish children who move out or evicted or whatever, move away, their education suffers because of the displacement. We saw, we know there's research there going back to Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans where people moved hundreds of miles mm. away from New Orleans at the time. 
the long-term educational impact of, on the children was horrendous. Mm. And that's going to be the same here unless, unless we actually do what we are required to do. Uh, and uh, these and children in Carrick and Cross are in pretty much uh, the same situation in that they're living in a hotel. And I, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, the situation in Carrick and Cross, uh, but we have heard that it's a community divided because of how uh, asylum seekers have uh, been accommodated there. Uh, and like other areas, we've been hearing that uh, a lot of the objection to what's happening is not about what's happening, but how it's happening. Uh, and when you hear of stories like this, you can uh, certainly say that there are valid arguments and that this is not an appropriate setting, that it hasn't been thought through. Somebody found a hotel or somewhere that you could put these people rather than thinking, can they live there? Well, I suppose you can certainly have that discussion and that's a le- legitimate discussion to have that simply this isn't suitable and the government hasn't done its job. That doesn't solve the problem today that we need to get these kids into a school or into education. Mm. Now, that is something mm. that has to be dealt with. I hope it's met on someone's desk between the Department of Justice and the Department of Education this morning to sort that out. Well, of course, it, but I mean, it brings you back to the start point, which is why were they put there in the first place when there weren't the services yeah, available well, I, to I them? Yeah, well, I mean, can answer that question. I mean, mm. somebody, somebody has slipped up here badly by, by, by arranging accommodation here without arranging the necessary and basic supports that are required. So it's been a major mess up here. I think it's simply a case of carelessness. It's really gross negligence, really, when they haven't taken into account a, a child's education. Um, but, you know, we, we are landed with this particular problem this morning and it is a problem that, that the state and society has to solve immediately. These children have to go into a school and there's no amount of debate as to whether, I mean, no one's going to close down that reception centre today or tomorrow to sort this problem. The problem is that we get the children educated. Mm. Um, I think that we do need uh, to make sure when the government is putting uh, the tender out uh, for reception centres as they are at the moment around the country, that they do make sure that communities are consulted but also that all of these facilities and necessary rights are available, and that is absolutely key and clearly hasn't been mm. done there. But I don't know the full circumstances of of Carrington Cross. Mm. I mean, they say that there's no school places available, but I am quite sure uh, that if someone went there, that places could be found or an arrangement could be made within mm. the centre on a temporary basis mm. on the same way as home tuition is. And that's not ideal, but that's the very, very uh, minimum. Uh, that's required on a temporary basis while the thing is sorted out. I would, I would like to have thought, and I don't know this, that the Department of Education would be driving teachers up there this morning to start educating yeah. those children in the reception centre. Well, it, it, it's not ideal, as you say, but it, it's probably a little bit better than what is a ludicrous situation where you have children sitting around bored out of but their minds I, for two yeah. months on end. And uh, if you bear with us for a moment, we'll hear a little bit more about that experience and uh, some more of what Rebecca said about how life is for her children living under those circumstances. She was speaking to Barry White on News Talk. They are so bored. They are bored too much because it's a hotel and they're not allowed they don't have a, a place to play or to do anything like any activity or something they just sit in in their room like the whole day they do nothing it's bad because even when they are there in the hotel they are they're not allowed to be running through the corridors and make noise so they, they just have to sit in the room and watch tv we would love if they can organize the school for the children. That that will be the main uh, concern from from now. Other things is accessory, but at least if the kids can go to school immediately, that then it will be good for us. 
Uh, we've been talking, Thomas Byrne, uh, about Rebecca's children uh, being uh, treated with uh, some sort of, of dignity the, to be afforded their rights. Uh, but, uh, I mean, this is really fundamental stuff. Uh, they need to be treated with some humanity, to be treated as human beings, it would seem. It's it's just appalling listening to, to Rebecca there. It really is appalling. I mm. mean, I had a child that was sick for a week and he was bored by the end of it, but he wasn't sitting in a hotel room mm. uh, for months on end. I mean, it's just... Not allowed to run and play. It's absolutely appalling, um, the situation that's there. At the very least, school gives children uh, an outlet, an opportunity actually to make friends, uh, to play sport, and and to keep their education, which is critical, mm. absolutely critical for the remainder of their life. And as to whether if they're given leave to remain in this country, they can then be productive citizens of the country as well. I mean, this is so important, not just today, obviously for those children's rights and for their life and for the sheer boredom of the country, but also for integration later on. We need to make sure that all all newcomers into the country receive the benefit of education. That just helps them get jobs, get work, be productive in society and the economy. It's it's, it's the only way uh, that we solve these things. This is this is causing problems today that you've heard so graphically mm. there on the radio for the mm. families involved, but it is causing problems for society into the future as well. So it, it has to be sorted. And I would hope, I, I mean, certainly if I was Minister for Education, I'd be having the exact same conversation with my officials and with the Department of Justice that I'm having with you now. There's no yeah. doubt about it. Mm. Well, there's no doubt about it. I think any parent, uh, whether they were born in Johannesburg or if uh, they were born in Ennis or RD or wherever, uh, will tell you they'd be very concerned about their child's future if their child didn't go to school. And after two months being absent like that, uh, you're building up problems going into the future. And that sort of goes without saying. Uh, but for all of us. For all of us. And that's what I mean. The children affected, yeah. but for the whole country, actually. That's the problem that's been built up. And that's and people who start giving out, and I believe people were texting in to, to one of the stations yesterday, giving out about children getting education. But I think they really want to look into their own hearts and, and how anybody could have that view. But those views have been expressed in this country. And I think it, it is totally separate from the debate as to where uh, asylum centres or reception centres should be located. Is we must as a nation decide, I think we do actually, yeah. that these children, ha- I mean, legally they have, but as a nation that with open hearts we say yes, give them an education, we're, we're yeah. decent people, we're, we're, we're Irish people, and we are going to comply with the laws that we are required to comply with. Yeah. These, these simply aren't, uh, this isn't a choice actually. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, uh, it goes back to what you said a moment ago, though, about where these centres are located. Surely uh, the two go hand in hand. Uh, there's no point in housing people somewhere where there isn't a school available for them in the same way that there's no point in housing somebody somewhere if uh, there aren't enough GPs or sports clubs or other things yeah. that people expect in their lives. Well, of course, and first of all, that's not an excuse for inaction by the department. They still have to do it. Even They've done that now. They've opened that centre. They have to then deal with the consequences to provide the education. But certainly when we are, when the department is looking at mm. reception centres, and there will be some in the LMFM region, I've no doubt, uh, in, the next few, in the next few months, well, they need to make sure they're in places uh, where, where the facilities are or the facilities aren't there. They, they provide them and they let uh, everybody know we are opening a centre here mm. and this is where the school is going to be. This is where the... But the is this our future? I mean, we're to house an additional 1,200 people in uh, the Loudmead area and two other counties, uh, but uh, where are they going to go? I, I have no idea. Um, the department is looking for tenders and I mean, this is obviously a major problem throughout Europe at the moment. Uh, this is this this is something we have to do. We are required to do it, uh, but it is going to require action at a European level and that's not just in terms of uh, borders, which border control is obviously really, really important, but also in terms of foreign uh, aid as well. I mean, sometimes people say we should look after our own, etc. Mm-hmm. You hear this when you talk about foreign aid. 
but you know we need to make sure that that we give people opportunities in their own countries so they don't feel the need to leave and also this country has a huge reputation as peacemakers over the decades, uh, particularly since the UN was founded. And we need to make sure that whatever has been done in the world, that we're trying to resolve conflicts as well, because that always leads to massive displacements of people who come across Europe and some of them eventually end up in Ireland. And we've seen the circumstances of the, the lorries uh, arriving into mm. this country, mm. those, those people who died, uh, unfortunate people who died of the lorry uh, in England uh, last month as well. So... The, this requires action locally, but it requires international action as well. And I think Ireland can and should be a leader in terms of, you know, conflict resolution internationally mm. and economic development internationally as well um, to try and uh, make sure that, you know, all these people can have a bright future of their own countries. And, and clearly many of them don't. Yeah, well, they are here. And I think there's a lot of people listening to us uh, this morning who would believe uh, that uh, the level of neglect that these children are enduring because of... Uh, the shortcomings in how the state is dealing with them is unforgivable. I should mention that we did ask Fine Gael if uh, they'd have somebody to talk to us about this uh, this morning. Uh, that wasn't possible, but I, I gather that it'll be an issue they'll ask to but, respond but to. Ironically, the they had a by-election candidate talking about indoctrination by ISIS of three-year-olds. But, you know, we're not even giving some of, the, some of those children education ourselves. So it's, you know, they want to get real and see what the real problems are. And, and, and these are issues that need to be dealt with. And by the way, Michael, mm. there are, you know, while we're on this subject, there are also Irish children being denied their mm, right to education yeah. as well, and that's something I've been raising on this show and in the Dáil before, and particularly children with special needs, and that is something else uh, that is a scandal. Okay. I, I'm sure uh, this will be raised in the Dáil, as I say. As I mentioned, I, I've requested to raise it today, yeah. yeah. As I mentioned, uh, Fine Gael uh, didn't have... Uh, anybody available to talk to us about it uh, this morning. Uh, unforgivable as it might seem to many of us, but thank you indeed for taking the time to be with us on the programme this morning. That's uh, Fianna Falls spokesperson on education, Thomas Byrne, who's a TD in Mideast. The Michael Reed Show. Yesterday, as you probably know, was uh, the International Day for the Elimination of uh, Violence Against Women. In line with that, uh, the Irish Congress of uh, Trade Unions published uh, a survey on uh, sexual harassment at work. And we'll hear some of uh, the findings now with Laura Bambrick, who's uh, the Social Policy Officer with ICTU. A very good morning to you, Laura, and thanks uh, for joining us here on the programme. This was an opinion poll of 1,347 members uh, of uh, trade unions around the the country. The majority of responses were from women, 971. Uh, I take it uh, you wouldn't be overly surprised uh, that you found that 8 out of 10 of the perpetrators involved in these incidents were men. No, there wasn't a surprise in that because we know from other research, both at home and abroad, that there tends to be a power dynamic with sexual harassment. So that can tend to be men uh, being the harasser of women and for it to be management. But as you did mention there, that uh, 7 out of 10 of the respondents were women, which meant that just over 300 of them were men. So when we look at the difference between men and women and the type of their experience of harassment, there was very little difference between the two. The biggest gap between uh, men that responded to our survey and women was that men were more likely to identify as gay, bisexual and trans. And they were experiencing the same comments, the same remarks, the same jokes 
of a sexual nature, about their appearance, about their sex life, and about their sexual orientation. From uh, men? Uh, from from men and <laughs> yeah, from yeah, women. Yeah, yeah, and, but predominantly uh, from men, I take it. Predominantly, but if you know, if we go back to it, eighty percent of the harassers were men, which meant that twenty percent of them were women. Mm. So uh, yes, predominantly, but not exclusively male. Okay. As well, like that, uh, we've seen that one in three was a manager, either a direct manager or maybe a regional manager. But again, half of them were co-workers. So while somebody could be on the same pay grade or the same level as you, they may have more experience, they may be there longer. So that's where the dynamic can come from. Mm. And uh, yes, uh, this survey sort of reaffirmed stuff that we already know, that we already know that uh, it's likely to be a man, it's likely to be a co-worker or a manager. While there were some harassers that are known as third-party harassers, they would be people from outside the organisation. Okay, but back up a a little bit, if you would, Laura, because we're talking about sexual harassment, but what do we mean when we talk uh, about sexual harassment? Because uh, some of uh, the people you spoke to uh, complained of uh, jokes of a sexual nature, for example. Yeah, so the Employment Equality Acts give a very broad definition of what constitutes sexual harassment and they define it as any form of unwanted and unwanted is a very important word there so unwanted verbal non-verbal or physical conduct of a sexual nature and any of that that has the purpose or the effect of violating a person's dignity and creating an atmosphere that's hostile and humiliating environment. So what that means in effect is something that offends somebody, makes them feel uncomfortable and prevents them from going about doing their normal day's work. It's uh, intruding in their sense of confidence and their sense of dignity. Mm. And it can be more extreme, obviously, uh, because there can be sexual touching, which has been reported, uh, pornographic material being shown uh, on phones around in the canteen or whatever the case may be. Uh, Or it could be a hand on a knee or a hand on the lower back. Yeah, so it goes right through the scale. So the most common would be the verbal type of harassment and they would be the comments and remarks of a sexual nature, maybe about a worker's clothes, their body, their sex life, their sexual orientation. And then um, another common one was uh, unwanted verbal sexual uh, advances. Others were touching, as you said, Mm -hmm. the arm, the lower back, but more than what would be commonly referred to as the groping, maybe uh, the buttocks, the breasts, attempting to kiss people, up to the very extreme where there's sexual violence, including rape. So 2% of respondents reported that they had experience of sexual violence, sexual assault Mm -hmm. or rape within the workplace. Worryingly, five people said that that had occurred within the last 12 months. And what is the workplace? Uh, Because uh, there are workplace uh, events or events uh, that uh, you would attend with colleagues, such as the Christmas party, and we're coming into that season now, and that seems to have been a particular problem for people. 
Absolutely. So then when we ask people the type of harassment they receive, we also ask them a series of questions about the location. And the location of sexual harassment remains overwhelmingly the work premises. So your normal office, factory, shop remains the most likely place. But then there is a lot, as you mentioned, off-site location. So some of that can be a conference, maybe travelling to and from work with a colleague. Um, But the most common is, as you mentioned, the Christmas party, work social events. But what we did, what, what an interesting finding thrown up by this survey is, we're seeing increasingly a lot of unwanted sexual behaviour from colleagues starting to move online. Mm. So you would receive uh, messages of sexual uh, content from colleagues, maybe over the phone, online, or email, social media. Mm. And that, uh, that, that points to a growing problem in the modern uh, workplace. And again, probably shouldn't be surprising when we think of recent conversations that would have been had with women in the public eye. A lot of the harassment they would receive would Mm. be of a sexual nature. So again, we're seeing this for uh, the Joe Soap in in their normal day of work. Yeah, it's very strange and very difficult to understand, uh, but uh, the impact uh, is no less on somebody who is upset uh, by this type of uh, an approach. Uh, But uh, obviously, you don't have to accept it and you can complain. But when people have complained, uh, the outcome hasn't been what you might expect. Yeah, so we did ask people, what did they do? We gave them a series of options. And one of the options was, I did nothing. Now, that's been widely reported as, I didn't report it to my employer. And it would include that. But in the first incidence, and especially when it's, uh, as we mentioned, it's a joke of a sexual sexual content, The uh, code of practice that the Department of Justice has published says that workers in the first instance, where practical, should approach the harasser and make it known that their comments are unwelcome and they make the person feel uncomfortable and they'd much rather they would stop. But people aren't even doing that. They're moving on, they're avoiding uh, the person, they're being overly cautious of where they go. Of the few people, so four in five, 80% do absolutely nothing. They don't take any informal approach or they don't bring the, um, bring the issue to mm-hmm. their employer, to their HR, to their union rep. Of those few that do report, the 20%, the one in five, three quarters of those were very unhappy by how they, the, the response they received from their employer. They felt that they weren't uh, listened to. And in some instance, they felt that they were punished for actually making the the Mm. complaint. They were subsequently overlooked for promotion or it led to further bullying and harassment. They were ridiculed for making the complaint. What do you say about that? It's, and then mm. it's, uh, that's one of the very shocking yeah. uh, incidents and it pos- possibly points to the reason why people aren't complaining, mm. that they just don't have trust 
in the procedures in place that an employer might be able to turn and say, well, look, we have policy, we have procedures in place if there is an issue of harassment. But if people know from past experience of somebody who went the route and uh, complained, but subsequently was passed over for that promotion, or it led to a worst case scenario, why would you put yourself in that position? Wouldn't it just be easier to, as we see, many people are either changing their role internally, changing their job, or they're in fact looking to change their job completely, move employer, rather than have to deal with the harassment. So the the consequences can range from, yeah, a momentarily embarrassing to uh, having to uproot your uh, your career in order to escape this unwanted uh, behaviour of a sexual nature. Okay, well, uh, it raises a lot of questions. Uh, they'll remain unresolved this morning, but food for thought for all of us. Laura, thank you indeed for joining us here. Thanks for having me, Thank Michael. you very much thank indeed. You. Laura Bambrick, Social Policy Officer with ICTU, the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. The Michael Reid Show. Uh, figures from uh, the Central Statistics Office yesterday show that average earnings are rising by 3.4%. Uh, the latest data shows uh, that weekly salaries rose to €768.14. That's for the third quarter of this year, up from €742.75. Uh, a year ago, let's talk about this with Neil MacDonald, who's the Chief Executive of ISME. A very good morning to you, Neil, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, the CS so is suggesting that whilst average earnings have increased by 3.4%, that they've only increased by 1.3% in the public sector. You've uh, an issue with this, do you? Well, I, I think that just reflects that there has been uh, and remains there's a, a, an ongoing very substantial gap between the uh, public sector and the private sector. In any case, the gap uh, remains at 37%. So as we approach uh, full employment uh, in the economy, it's no surprise that um, private sector wages are growing more strongly than those in the public sector because it's just far harder to attract people into the into the private sector by comparison with the public sector. Uh, there, there are recruitment and retention problems. It's, it's very hard to get people now. You're in a bidding war as an employer. Mm-hmm in the private sector so so these figures come as no surprise to us Michael Right but is it, is it possible to compare like with like when you say the difference is 37% uh, I mean we're talking about average earnings for people who are doing a huge variety of uh, different uh, jobs I mean if you look at the private sector for example the highest earners uh, would appear to be those in information and communications uh, they're on an average of 1,255 but uh, those uh, who are in accommodation or food services can only look on in envy because uh, the average wage there is 383 euro a week. Yeah, it's um, it's always an area that's extremely difficult to make comparisons and to be fair, the CSO uh, admits this themselves, so they do put a health warning on their own figures and say that it's, you know, the, there's no agreed methodology for doing public and private sector uh, comparisons within the EU. We comply with what are called the Eurostat standards. So so in Brussels, they say this is who you measure in each sector. 
um, and that, that, but that's why in some ways we'd prefer if they just stop attempting to justify the gap. What we do know from anyone who has done cross-country comparisons is that the gap between the public and private sector uh, in, in across Europe, uh, the, the only people with as big a gap as you see in Ireland are those in Italy, Portugal, Spain and Greece, and they have much lower uh, private sector earnings profile. So Ireland is a very high income country, uh, so we're very unusual in that respect. Uh, and so earn- really earnings are one thing, uh, but when you take into account the overall package, uh, it's another thing, isn't it? Uh, when you take into account pension contributions, for example. Well, well pensions are, are the sort of gold dust, really. That, I mean, that is... In, in the long run, when we measure our, our working life and our retired life, because, no, of course, <laughs> no one's complaining about this, Michael, because, because our uh, um, uh, average age, our mor- mortality is, is uh, our, our age of mortality is, is increasing yeah. and is now in, in the 80s for men and women, we have at least... 20 years of retired life in, in almost all cases uh, before we die, uh, on which we live on pensions. In, in the old days, on an old age pension, people could, you know, figure on, on living a few years, you know, five... If at all. I mean, this is the point that Tisha has been making in the 70s. You got the pension at 70, but you tend to die at 68, so you worked yeah. till you died. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, by the way, this is not a phenomenon that's unique to Ireland. Mm. It's, it's a Western uh, 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 hemisphere problem. We now have massive uh, unfunded debts on our public sector pay pensions and on our social protection penif- uh, uh, pensions. That's the um, uh, contributory and non-contributory old age pensions. So uh, it's a real issue because we haven't funded these and that means in the longer term and by longer term now I mean from, from 2020 out to about 2055 the exchequer is going to have to uh, subsidise uh, social protection pensions to a very substantial uh, amount mm. on an annual basis. Yeah. Uh, and then add into that uh, the cost, the additional cost to the health service and nursing home care and all that sort of yeah. thing. Uh, but uh, when we look at this increase in earnings, I suppose it's something that has been factored in by businesses of all sizes. ISME carries out its uh, uh, economic uncertainty uh, or its uh, confidence uh, indicators uh, and economic uncertainty is one of the factors that, that you found in uh, the latest report, uh, but you're also factoring in an increase in wages. Yes, most businesses are uh, are planning on increasing wages in the next year. The numbers of businesses, however, that are forecasting wage increases has dropped and the amount by which they're saying they're going to increase uh, wages has dropped. So we do see an across-the-board decline in sentiment and I suppose you don't have to look too far to see why confidence and sentiment are going down um, while there's a sort of a lull mm. in, in the whole Brexit narrative now because of the UK general election. I think that the general consensus is that um, a, a, a Johnson government Brexit is likely to be harder. It's going to look, it's going to be a customs type Brexit, which is going to be cost additive for us. Um, alongside more or less global uh, uh, 
economic uncertainty. So Germany is really just hedging above a technical recession. And, you know, we still haven't resolved the trade issues between China and America, both of which are big trading partners of Ireland. So, you know, I don't want to put a, to sound like a Jonah, but there are clouds out there that, that mean that people's confidence is declining. The, the other way you actually see this uh, bizarrely, Michael, is if you look for, for those who have no social life like myself and you look at the central bank deposits yeah. by small businesses, they increased in June by the largest amount ever. So in other words, people are, are behaving like squirrels approaching winter and they're just putting cash away. So uh, small business deposits in the central bank grew by 4.6 billion uh, to, uh, to, we now have 102 billion in just cash savings put away. Uh, now in some respects that's good of course because people have something to fall back on in leaner times, but it's also uh, you know, people save like that in yeah. anticipation of tough so times ahead. It, it indicates that they're expecting they'll leave that money uh, for yes. a rainy day. It's about to rain, in other words. All right, Neil, we'll exactly. leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here this morning. Neil MacDonald, Chief Executive of uh, the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association, is me. The Michael Reed Show. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Martin phoned in this morning straight away. He was listening into your interview with Deputy Thomas Byrne and he says, number one, the asylum seekers are not in Carrickmacross. They are in Matt or Clune. Number two, yes, everyone is entitled to an education. But what about the children who have autism or special needs and aren't being accommodated in our school? He says he's aware of one particular school in Cavan. It's a primary school that has 25 children with autism. But when it comes to secondary school, there is nowhere for them to go. It's crazy. What is going on at the moment? What is the solution to this? We cannot educate our own special mm. needs children. Yeah, exactly the point I think that uh, Thomas Byrne was making. Uh, Billy, listening to Thomas Byrne talking about the problem in Carrick-Macross and the children not getting a place in school. Everyone knows what's happening in Carrick-Macross. There is all sorts of problems there as a result of the asylum seekers and the poor migrants. It's not their fault. They've just been put in there and nobody gives a care in the world about them. You don't see them going into affluent areas in Dublin, no, because the government Mm. just wants to shove them away where they can be forgotten about and not have proper services in place for them. There are people out there making money off these people's back. It's the same with the homeless, Michael. The hotels will accommodate them until a big concert of the All Ireland comes up and then they are turfed out Mm. again. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Seems to be the case, all right. And uh, hard to believe uh, that you'd put so many children into one area when there aren't school places for them. Uh, another listener listening to your programme about children having no school to go to in Monaghan I wonder why the authorities don't order or organise other educational activities for them at least in the meantime that something could be organised that there are alternatives to putting them into the classroom maybe get sporting clubs involved even get them out doing activities with their parents the children wouldn't be as bored and it would get them out and mixing mm. with local children Yeah, yeah. Carmel says it's a disgrace that the children in Carmel Cross are not being given an education but we need to look fully into the circumstances of the situation maybe there isn't a place 
teachers in the local schools to accommodate them. And if that if that's the case, you cannot blame the schools for that. Why wasn't more research done to make sure that all the necessary services were in place for the children before they were put into emergency accommodation in that area? The blame lies with the government for not providing properly for the people coming into the country. Yeah, well, they would seem obvious questions. Uh, and uh, the fear, I think, is obvious. It goes without saying why people are, are concerned if uh, children are out of school for as long as uh, this cohort has been uh, two months at this stage. Uh, it's a very long time and no solution in sight. Uh, let's talk about something completely different though because uh, Black Friday looms and uh, we're joined now by Denise Cusick, Community Protection Advisor with Ulster Bank with some advice for our listeners. Uh, very good morning to you Denise and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, they say this is a day when shoppers can get great bargains. Is it that or are there risks attached? I, I think firstly, Michael, to, to point out that, you know, Black Friday is becoming a, a household Christmas shopping event for us here in Ireland. And, and many people are going online, including those that might not normally do so and doing so under the illusion that there is this once in a lifetime bargain out there. Um, and along with that hype to participate mm. and that sense of urgency to grab that bargain, it can sometimes impact how we shop. Um, and you may, I suppose, end up getting something that you don't need or something that's not as it seems. Because you um, feel you should get it before it's gone or get it before it's too late. Yeah, there's there's mm. really that hype that you need to get it and, and buy it quickly. Now, look, on, on the positive front um, from our survey, um, it, it found that uh, 77% of respondents in, in the Leinster area took the necessary precautions to shop safely online. So that's really, really positive. Mm. Um, but a little bit more concerning, it, it did outline that one in 10 people did share their online banking pins and passwords. And that would be very concerning because it's like giving your, you know, your wallet with all your Christmas mm. cash to a stranger. Yeah, And um, what happened with those people? Uh, was it that their bank accounts were cleared out? That's always a, a possibility, you know, when mm. you share your online banking pins and passwords. Well, I, I think you'd really have to expect that to happen if you were to do that, if you were to give your bank details, because nobody really asks you for those details, do they? That Exactly. You should never divulge that information to anybody. It's extremely precious and it certainly should be should be treated that way. Even your bank would never ask you for your your full pin or your password for mm. your online banking. So, so to mine that. Um, as well, the survey found that 20% admit that they would click on a link that if, if it promised a bargain. Yeah. And this is something that you'll find a lot with Black Friday um, and Cyber Monday. And it's something to be aware of that scammers will actually use fake adverts, fake websites um, in relation to targeting people during this period. And mm. um, so just to be to be very mindful of that and not to click on a link or a, a pop up. Um, if it does promise a bargain, go to that main website. Um, if it is a real bargain, it'll be on the main website. Itself. And what, what, what tends to happen to people who click on uh, these pop-ups? Uh, is it that their computer is destroyed or what? There, there is that option, Michael. Look, there, there could be, if you click on a link, there could be malware downloaded onto your computer system mm. and there could be more requests for personal information. Again, that would be another red flag where they're looking for unnecessary information in relation to buying a product. So again, don't don't divulge unnecessary personal information um, in relation to buying something. Right, uh, not much of a, a bargain uh, if uh, you end up with nothing and need a new computer, I suppose. Uh, if uh, something does go wrong while you're shopping on the internet, what should you do? 
what I what I would advise to you is just to contact your your bank, especially if you've divulged any of your your personal information, um, as well uh, inform the guardy. Um, but look, I think online shopping can be perfectly safe. What I would just say is stick to the websites and the shops that are known to you and that you're familiar with and always read reviews and, and look out for secure checkouts and secure ways of making payments such as PayPal and, mm. and Stripe. And look, just stop and think before you click. Um, and like that, that's our message. It's all about education and awareness. And that's what our Friends Against Scams initiative is all about that. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Mm. Or there may be another reason. Revenue uh, suggesting to people this morning uh, that if it seems very cheap. Uh, it may be because uh, you're being quoted a price without the VAT and you could end up with a big bill afterwards, as uh, the case may be. Yeah, it could be held up in, in customs, especially if you're if you're buying overseas. Yeah, So it, it is important to do your research. And, and this is why I suppose we're asking people to take more time and not to be rushed because it is that sense of urgency or that sense that you have to act quickly that can impact your your the way that you buy things and and how quickly that you do it. Okay. we leave it there and thank you indeed uh, for that advice. Denise Cusack, Community Protection Advisor with Ulster Bank. Now let's go back uh, to the phones and some more of uh, the calls and comments you have there, Marie. Michael, still sticking with that story surrounding the provision of emergency accommodation and the lack of school places. Leo phoned in. He wants to know why the government doesn't consider stemming the flow of asylum seekers into the country until we deal with the asylum seekers that are here already. Make sure that they are set up in a manner that deals properly with their needs and make sure that they have access to the services they should be getting. Once that is done properly and people are integrated into society, then bring more people in on a more measured basis, allowing us to make sure we are looking after them properly, okay. says Leo. All right. well, I'm not sure that it's possible to do that with the system of direct provision that we have in this country. As I mentioned earlier on, Fine Gael were not available to us today. Uh, Michelle says that there's talk, Michael, about 13 uh, new direct provision centres mm. uh, in different counties around the country and is there going to be research done in advance of that to make sure that there is places in schools that there are a lot of schools particularly in areas that are close to in close proximity to Dublin that are already uh, oversubscribed can't cater for children living in their community Mm -hmm. and she wonders how all this is going to pan out uh, she said, thinks that there needs to be more thought going into it. Yeah, well, uh, the promise is uh, that there will be more research and there'll be more consultation that uh, the local communities will be consul- uh, consulted with. Uh, but I have a, a feeling uh, that uh, we could be having similar conversations in many years to come from now. You were speaking yesterday to Sean Fleming, Michael, on direct provision, mm. and Anthony from RD got in touch to say, Michael, you rightly speak of clearing the present centres by moving on the occupants with occupants with one decision or another but I would remind you that when decisions are made they are not being accepted and several routes of appeal right up to the Supreme Court seem to be available this is what is causing 8 and 10 year delays in moving people on and they have been aided in this delay claims Anthony by misinformed do-gooders and people who seem to think they know better than state adjudicators well, I, I don't know about that. We have a, a system that is flawed. I'll give you that, Anthony. And uh, it's uh, certainly very wrong uh, that people are, are in a limbo, whether it's uh, 
the right thing or the wrong thing, whether they should have a right to stay here or whether they should be deported. It should be decided one way or another much quicker than the kind of time frame that you outlined there of 10, 12 or 14 years. Just finally, Michael, um, a comment that's come in just following your interview um, with Laura Bambrick in relation to sexual harassment mm. in the workplace. This sister didn't want to be named. It says, I found your interview very interesting. I worked in a place once and there was one male colleague who constantly complimented me on my appearance. I couldn't say it was harassment. Initially, I took it as a compliment, but then it started that he would comment every single day on how I was looking and it started to make me feel uncomfortable. As a young woman, it was hard to know how to react as I didn't want to be making a big deal out of it, yet I dreaded meeting him every day. Yeah, well, I think that's probably the problem that people have, that you don't want to be making a big deal out of it because you're told you're this or that, the other, and uh, that seemed to be the complaint that a, a lot of people had after they felt uncomfortable that they had this unwanted approach by somebody else uh, that uh, they complained uh, about how uh, they had uh, been victimised and then were re-victimised as a, a result. Mm. All right. Okay. thank you for that. And uh, thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. The Michael Reid Show. Now, let's talk once again about uh, the Community Involvement Scheme. We were talking about the Community Involvement Scheme yesterday with uh, Declan Brannock from the Fall TD. This is a scheme where road improvements can be done on cul-de-sacs and lanes with a contribution from the residents. And Declan Brannock was saying that he was calling on government to to increase the monies made available to such schemes so that uh, there would be less of a burden on the people who live in uh, these parts of of, uh, the country, but we were contacted subsequently by Johnny Gurk, who's a Sinn Féin councillor in County Meath, and he's on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you, Johnny, and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, there's been an initiative in Meath which has helped to reduce the costs for people, uh, but you've been told that that will no longer be possible to do. Uh, to put this in context, the kind of contribution uh, that people have to make can be quite substantial. It's based on a percentage of uh, between 15 and 30% of uh, the overall cost, isn't it? Will be fifteen, Michael. Um, thanks, thanks for having us on. Um, the CIS scheme, Michael, it's eighty-five percent um, funded by the department, and then in in me, like for the last few years, um, the council was making up ten percent of that, which was ninety-five percent, and then um, with the council's discretionary money, they were fit to help the people on the roads to make up the other five percent, which which meant. That um, that we were getting a good lot of roads done, but at the same time, Michael, um, you know, it, it means people contributing to public roads, which which is wrong as well. But about six months ago, Michael, the department sent a letter to Mead County Council stating that uh, Mead County Council couldn't contribute this ten percent to these roads, um, and that um, the the councillors couldn't contribute their discretionary money um, to it. So, which meant the residents of the road would have to make up the 15% on their own. Now, the mm. uh, Mead County Council have sent a letter back to the department asking for clarification on this, and we haven't heard anything back yet. Why? What's the logic of it? I, I don't know, Michael, but I know one thing. Um, if, if it comes in, you can imagine um, a road there that's going to cost 100000 The residents of the road will be asked to come up with 15000 mm. which is, is, is not going to happen. And the only roads that will be done is, is wealthy people on the road, the people okay. who, who have less money. Well, I suppose I can understand the logic of saying to the local authority uh, that uh, you've been given that 
10,000 that you're proposing to give uh, to these schemes uh, for other purposes and you should be spending them on other purposes rather than these roads. Uh, but when it comes uh, to the discretionary money that the councillors have, uh, that's very difficult to understand. Surely that's up to you to spend on what you decide is appropriate. You would, Michael. Um, you, you, that's that's what it's supposed to be for. It's supposed to be used at your discretion to improve your areas and that you know. But but these are public roads, Michael. The council should be um, should be um, paying to um, upgrade these roads anyway. Like you know, the, 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 this came in about six years ago into Mead, um, where where people were asked to contribute towards their roads, and um, like if there would have been a good lot of roads done since. But at the same time, the the people on the road were contributing to it, and then again, Michael, it wouldn't be done. On, on a worse basis, it would be done on ability to pay, which is totally wrong. Again, um, you could have a, you could have a list of roads, and if some people on that road wasn't able to contribute to it, that road wouldn't be even considered to be done. You know, mm. which, which, in my opinion, is wrong. Yeah, but I suppose the other argument is uh, that people knew that when uh, they moved into their houses. But Michael, these roads were always maintained by the council up until up until a few years ago, until until. Uh, things got bad and then they weren't in a position to look after all these roads. But these roads, these are public roads that was always being looked after by the council for years and years. These, these are not um, LIS schemes or local improvement schemes where they're not in charge of the, can- the council. These roads are public roads in charge of the council. Mm. So, so they were always in charge of the council, Michael, always fixed by the council, you know. Mm. Uh, but there are areas uh, where there's lower levels of traffic uh, and wouldn't have been prioritised and that would have always been the case. There wouldn't have as much traffic, Michael, but um, like there would have been in in in, in times gone by, Michael. Um, you know when motor tax was used to fix the roads. These roads were always in good condition, like. But not, there's you, you take the CIS scheme in 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 the Kells area at the moment. Um, I think there's something like 70, ro- 70 roads on it um, to to be done under this CIS scheme. You know, but mm. you can imagine, Michael, if this thing comes in where the residents of the road are asked to contribute fifteen percent, how many of these roads will be done? Um, you know, none or, or very, very few, you know. Mm. So that, that's that's my issue with it anyway. I don't think, in the beginning, I don't think anyone should have to contribute to public roads because they're paying, they're paying uh, taxation in, in other ways, you know, but this this is what, what's there, you know. Oh, although many people have contributed and are very happy that they did and uh, that they had the opportunity to do that and to have uh, the potholes taken out of their roads because uh, many people will tell you they were living uh, in uh, areas uh, where the roads had holes as big as uh, craters as if you were in Beirut and bombs had landed on the road and it had been like that for so long that they'd given up any hope until this scheme became available to them. It would, Michael. Yeah, it, it would. It would have um, done away. Like, like one road last year. Now we get uh, twelve thousand discretionary money. One road alone there now of my uh, twelve thousand. I put three and a half thousand of the discretionary money towards it. You know, like um, so. Like that was the reason for that. Was Michael? Like the people on the road wouldn't have been able to contribute to it. So mm-hmm. I had to make up that five percent on my own. You know, not not on my own with the council's money, but uh, out of out of that discretionary money. You know, and that road, Michael, wouldn't have been done if the people had to come up with the three and a half thousand. You know. Mm. And is Meath County Council unique in uh, part funding these schemes? I'd say they are, Michael. Now, I'm not sure now what goes on in other counties, but um, like listening to Declan Brannock there yesterday, he, he didn't seem to... Do- that um, Loud County Council was making up the difference. Um, did I hear that right? Or um, I, 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 I'm surprised that Mead County Council is. Uh, I can't say with any certainty that Loud County Council is or is not, but I, I don't think it is. 
No, I don't think mm. it is either now. Um, but, you know, Michael, these roads, these roads won't be done, Michael. They mm. won't be done unless um, we can we can make the difference up some way. You know, there is um, residents on the roads that are contributing to it, you know, um, whatever they have. Like, uh, you, you take a road of 100,000, like, and... Um, so the, the, you're getting 85,000 from the department. The council was making up 10, was 95,000. So between a bit of discretionary money and the people on the road, they were making up that 5%, which was, you were getting the roads done, you know. But if, if this comes in, Michael, mm. it won't be done, you know. Yeah. It will, will not be done. This is a serious issue, Michael, because um, we, we've asked, and I brought it up at the transportation the last meeting now, and Paul McCabe uh, said that um, we should seek a meeting with the minister, which we have done. Uh, now we haven't heard anything back from him about this either, but this this Michael um, will will bring us onto the streets again, uh, picketing um, uh, ministers and um, TDs if this if this goes through. Mm. Okay, but uh, when it comes to the council, it would seem as though that ten percent uh, 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 contribution that it's giving is quite a lot, and it would also seem uh, as though residents are possibly. Uh, being asked to pay less in the first instance than they might be in other counties uh, because uh, Shane Ross, the Minister for Transport, uh, gave a written answer about these schemes uh, to Eamon Scanlon, the Fianna Fáil TD, back in May. And as I mentioned at the outset, uh, the Minister's uh, belief, and this is a, a written response, is uh, that the contributions range from 15 to 30%. In me, that's just in me. You're saying the highest will be fifteen percent. Yeah, and you'd you'd assume from that response that the minister gave that in some parts of the country people are paying up to thirty percent. Well, I don't know, Michael, now what they're paying in the other parts of the country, but I know in me that the department's paying eighty-five percent of it. You know, so um, it's fifteen percent of a shortfall. And and that's 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 Mead, you know. And um, but you you look at Michael Mead is some of the worst roads in the country. Like you know, even even um, in in the Kells area, like there's 31 percent of the roads in unacceptable condition. You know, like mm. um, how are we going to get on top of it, Michael? If things like this come in, you know. Mm. Uh, and are you barred or prohibited from? Uh giving a, a donation from your discretionary fund to, to any other uh, scheme or uh, cause or charity or anything like that. Is there anything else uh, that uh, you're not allowed to give money to? No, the only thing I heard yesterday, Michael, like, was that you couldn't contribute to staff wages or anything like that at council. Or, you know, um, but other than that, I think it's fairly open like to... Um, to tidy towns, yeah. um, all that kind of stuff. You know, um, the improvements in in your area. Um, I don't think there's there's very little now that wouldn't be approved um, for for your discretionary money. You know. Okay, and uh, you've questioned uh, that directive as such, uh, and you're waiting for a reply then uh, in relation to it. I take it. We're waiting for a reply from the minister. We want to meet him on that, and we want to meet him on other issues like about the thirty three percent of the roads that that's. Um, that's not getting done because we've 135 roads, Michael, in in the Kells area alone. That's um, that we have no plan to get them done. You know, and they're in the one to four category. You know, so we want to meet them about that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you even go over, Michael. Like it's not just um, a Kells um, problem. This you go over to the Trim area, Michael. The, 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 they're the second worst roads in the county from Castle Jordan, Balnebracky, Beliver, Longwood, Enfield, Clonard, Kildare. All that area of mm. the, in the Trim area, Michael, has the second worst roads in the county. You know, so it's a good bit of it needs addressing. You know, and we need some kind of a plan in place to deal with these these roads. You know, so that's what that, that's what we want to meet up about that and the CIS scheme. Okay, well, good luck with that, and uh, thanks uh, 
uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Johnny. Johnny Gurk, Sinn Féin councillor in County Meath. The Michael Reid Show. Now let's uh, talk uh, about uh, the by-elections this week. Our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, is on uh, the line. Very good morning to you, Sean, and uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Is it Friday they're on, or are we supposed to know? Yeah, no, it'll be Friday if they're on. Both <laughs> they're, but don't, but don't tell anybody. Don't, yeah, yeah. Well, it's on um, what particular constituency you're in, I suppose. Yeah, well, uh, the Taoiseach was canvassing yesterday in that particular constituency. Are we allowed to say where it is, or did he have anything to say when he was there? <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, he was down in uh, Wexford, but a lot quieter than the business he made to the other three constituencies in Fingal, over Midwest, and Cork North Central. He was down canvassing with Verona Murphy, but kept it all very, very hush-hush. Obviously, there's been the controversy raging over the last two weeks about the comments from Verona Murphy, what she said about asylum seekers, what she said about the Road Safety Authority, what she said about homeless people. Um, and Tisha had been due to go canvassing with her last Friday. That got called off in the end and he went canvassing instead with Eva Higgins in Dublin Midwest, which Fine Gael Sea really is their, their big chance of the seat. And so yesterday then, uh, word kind of started filtering through, although no no one in government would confirm it, that he was heading down to Wexford, going down to Wexford Town, and the teacher did indeed. He went canvassing for in and around 40 minutes with Verona Murphy in the town itself, going into different shops, didn't take any questions from the media, didn't uh, really say anything at all uh, publicly, which is markedly different to how he canvassed with the other three when he did these big press conferences in Cork. They did a launch at Sod Turning and. He was out canvassing in shopping centres very publicly mm. and saying things with the other candidates, so a, a very, very different tone. Right. Uh, have you ever come across anything like this in the run-up to an election uh, that the candidate isn't speaking uh, and the party leader, the Taoiseach for that matter, isn't speaking? It, it's kind of remarkable. I mean, in the week of an election, you have the Taoiseach in your constituency and you try to keep it hush-hush. You say almost nothing, which is it's absolutely remarkable. I haven't seen it before. Usually they're there are gangbusters trying to go and, and get publicity and get attention from it. It's interesting as well that uh, the two junior, Finnegan junior ministers in Wexford already sitting TDs, Michael Darcy and Paul Kill, were also there. And they seem to be hanging back a little bit, not uh, fully investing, shall we say, as uh, some of my colleagues have said, which will go along with the, the theory and the word we're hearing out of Wexford that Finnegan. As much as they'll have Rona Murphy on the ticket, they wouldn't be totally, totally upset if she didn't actually win, which is a remarkable scenario to find oneself in. Mm, they'd be happy if she didn't win, I'll tell you that. I mean, I'm not pressured to say it, but uh, forgive me for coming to my own conclusions. Uh, but uh, I'm looking at photographs of the Taoiseach. I was watching him on television. Uh, he seems uh, very relaxed, uh, very happy, meeting people and so on. He may not have been talking to the media, uh, but he does look... Uh, particularly relaxed, as he often does. Uh, do you think uh, he was a, a little bit like a, a swan yesterday, gliding gracefully on the surface, but paddling furiously beneath the water? <laughs> I'm not sure Leo Braggers ever been described as a swan, but that's, that's one way to, to look at it. Um, it's an interesting one, because Leo Braggers never been overly comfortable campaigning. He's not that kind of politician who, like, say, Enda Kenny was, who's happy going out and shaking hands and kissing babies. That's just, it's not him, and he has got a lot better at it over the last few years uh, going in and talking to people and, and pressing the flesh as it were so uh, he looked yeah he didn't look uh, totally uncomfortable but he also didn't spend a huge amount of time there so I think it was it was just interesting that they were avoiding saying anything at all uh, publicly and it's a very very strange position where they've had to now back their candidates despite the comments uh, and of course we have to remember Verona Murphy is going to be on the general election ticket mm. in Wexford as well that's the decision oh. that has to be made after Friday she's already on the slate to contest the general election 
alongside Paul Kyo and Michael Darcy. So it, it's going to be a really interesting result on Friday. For example, even if she doesn't win the seat, but does very well, mm. uh, you know, you'd have to, it would be very, very difficult for them to remove her without going back on what they've said already and then putting a big question mark over the decision to allow her to stay in the campaign for a by-election. Politically, mm. it's very, very tricky for the Taoiseach. And is she being censored? And if she is being censored, will she continue to be censored or do you expect to hear from her before uh, election day? Uh, because undoubtedly there'll be a, a number of uh, debates and people will continue to look for interviews with her before Friday. Well, she's actually due to do a debate on local radio in Wexford uh, this morning at 11 o'clock. Oh, now, okay. the, mm. as of the last time I was talking to them, was uh, she was the only candidate who had not confirmed uh, fully whether she would attend. So I'm kind of waiting anxiously by my, my radio to see if she does actually show up to that and is due to debate some of the other candidates. Other than that, I don't think we're going to hear her out in, in the media very much before the day. She is very much campaigning on the ground. I was in Wexford at the weekend and there's some uh, fantastic slogans and signs gone up with Verona, she's local and vocal, which uh, pretty much does sum up her her campaign (laughs) so far. And she's very, very much pushing for it. Certainly talking to to people, they don't think she's, you know, you can entirely root her out. It was always seen as a two-horse race, really, between Malcolm Byrne, Fina Fall and Verona Murphy. What Mm. I've heard in the last little while is that really... Uh, it is now a three-horse race. The Verona Murphy is very much still in it, and George Gordon of Labour is running a fantastic campaign there and might just sneak in or get very, very close to sneaking in. So I don't think we're going to see her, certainly in the national media, mm. but she could do a bit of local media before Very that. good. Well, it'd be interesting if uh, she is vocal on her local radio station at uh, 11 o'clock uh, this morning. Uh, undoubtedly, if that is uh, the case, uh, there'll be a lot of interest. Uh, I'm sure somebody will say, hold the front page. Uh, <laughs> as if they have a, a uh, print. Even an, an early day, an early edition will go out, no, no doubt. We'll go back to the early edition days. 11 o'clock, you might have your front page written. All right. Indeed. Uh, but I, I was sort of leading into this other story about uh, the one million euro printer in Leinster House. This is an amazing story. Uh, a printer that arrived on the 5th of December was installed on the 28th of September, so 10 months later, uh, because there wasn't any room for it. It's absolutely remarkable stories. They spend €800,000 on this printer, first of all. And, I mean, that raised kind of eyebrows in itself. Now, some of these industrial printers do cost a, a massive amount of money, and they do go, they are heavy duty. They're used a lot, and they are off as any of the stuff that uh, people will get through their letterboxes, yeah. the type of calendars in the new year and all that with their TD's lovely faces on them. They usually go through these kind of printers, so they're yeah. heavy duty enough. But they made an absolute, I, I can't think of the word without, without swearing, but yeah. a very, <laughs> very bad decision and a very incompetent. When it arrived, they got the measuring tape out and uh, it didn't. They, they, messed, they messed up the measuring in the first place yeah, and it didn't yeah. fit. This yeah. printer didn't fit, so they had to go and, near, and nearly gut the place. There had to be restructuring done walls knocked down, wire frames and metal frames changed at a cost of another almost 250,000 euros. So the, almost more than a million euro has been spent on this printer and the rug still, it still hasn't printed anything because the people who operate it are looking for more money in order to train and retrain to actually go and use this particular printer in Leinster House. So mm. it's one of those things where the the, the layer is revealed back into the bubble that Enster House is sometime and I think actual people are seeing what's going on and seeing how much money is being wasted here absolutely needlessly and it is scandalous. And when it didn't fit uh, they had to put it somewhere so they put it into storage in Ballymount Industrial Estate at a cost of €2,000 a month over 10 months that's €20,000. 
20,000 euro. I think mm. they did get one or two months grace on it. So it's slightly okay. less, but still more than, it's still into five figures just to store the thing because they messed up initially with the measurements. Uh, and indeed, the, the clerk of it all, the head of the all, Peter Finnegan, has decided to launch an investigation into how this happened and how they've ended up spending more than a million euro on a printer that couldn't fit into the building and then had to be placed in, in very, very costly uh, storage. And I know the Public Accounts Committee wants to have a look and a discussion about it on Thursday as well. Mm, and uh, the Public Accounts Committee want to ask Peter Finnegan what happened and, and why didn't you tell us the last time you were in here when you apparently knew about it? Uh, but undoubtedly, we'll hear more about that later. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's our political correspondent, Sean Defoe. Now, it would appear as uh, though uh, there's a major protest brewing in uh, Dublin today. Adam Woods, beef editor with the Irish Farmers Journal, is on the line. A very good morning to you, Adam, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. I take it there's the potential to bring uh, the capital city to a standstill today. There is, Michael. Um, I attended um, Virginia this morning um, and there was about uh, 30 farmers uh, with their tractors, um, we'll say, assembled uh, just outside the Lakeside Manor um, on the way up the N3. Um, and the plan was to meet in Dunchaplin, um and then head into the city centre today along with, um, we'll say, convoys from other counties uh, around the country, um, jeeps, trailers, tractors. Um, and the plan is to meet in Merrion Square uh, sometime around lunchtime and, and proceed to the Dáil then um, and there's obviously a couple of hundred farmers on foot as well um, we'll say making their way into the city centre So when you say 30 tractors it's at least 30 tractors there could be far more than that The, 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 the organisers expect in excess of two or three hundred tractors to be to be hitting the city centre and um, that's 30 from one county so um, they, 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 the organisers uh, said that they had tractors coming from every county in the country so I take it there are there are a lot of tractors heading for the city centre this morning. Okay, well that will undoubtedly bring uh, the city to a standstill if it transpires to be the case. Why are farmers taking this action? Yeah, I guess there's still a lot of frustration out there, Michael, with beef farmers. I suppose um, if we look back to August and September, there was uh, eight weeks of beef protests outside uh, beef factories. Uh, that was, uh, I suppose, in, in protest against price. Um, price really hasn't improved since that. Um, and they feel that the government um, has forgotten um, beef farmers and they feel that uh, they, we need them to listen. And I suppose there are a number of areas that they want. There was a task force that was set up um, and that was agreed upon in September. Uh, the second meeting hasn't taken place of that um, and they want that meeting to take place. There are a number of injunctions against some farmers in Longford that haven't been lifted. Um, and the, the minister, I know, is working behind the scenes to try and get everybody together around the table. But I suppose that was where issues with the industry was to be discussed and where progress was made. But that meeting can't take place at the moment. So there's a stalemate there. I suppose they're worried about a carbon tax coming in that it's going to hit farming um, in particular. Uh, and they wanted there was a carbon tax to be, to be redistributed out to maybe farmers in terms of farming in a more carbon-friendly way. Mm. I suppose family farms are really worried about family farms, the future of family farms. At the current beef price at 3.45 a kilo, uh, these farmers aren't making money um, and they want uh, people to sit up and listen. So there's no one single issue that uh, is uh, the purpose of uh, this protest. It's uh, an amalgamation of all of those things that are putting pressure on farmers. Who's organising this? Yeah, so I guess there are a number of farm organisations. Um, the, the Independent Farmers of Ireland, they're probably centrally involved you also have beef plant members there this morning in Virginia. So you have a number of, of farm organisations, but it's an individual farmer protest, so that they're welcoming anybody on board uh, that will come to support them today, I suppose. But it's the independent farmers of Ireland are central to, to today's protest. OK, and uh, has there been negotiations, uh, you know, to uh, try and stop this from happening? Because, uh, as mentioned, uh, undoubtedly it'll cause mayhem in Dublin if uh, tractors uh, drive slowly up through the city like that. Yeah, there was some confusion right up to last night as to whether it was going to take place or not. I suppose the, 
the organisers kept, uh, I suppose, what was happening a uh, sort of secret in terms of where the tractors were assembling and where they were going. So, so it has all happened this morning quite quickly, and I understand there hasn't been any negotiations. I know the last time there was a tractor protest in Dublin, I think there was only maybe 250 tractors allowed into the city centre, so the Gowdy stopped the tractors from going into the city centre. I'm not too sure what will happen today, but I know we have reporters in there on the ground at the moment um, to, to see what is happening in there. OK, and we'll uh, watch that space uh, more from uh, the farmersjournal.ie as well. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme uh, this morning. With that, Adam Woods, Beef Editor with the Irish Farmers Journal. The Michael Reed Show. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Paul Connolly from Dundalk Garda Station joins us for the report this week and we begin in Drogheda with a robbery that occurred last Tuesday. That's right. Good morning, Michael. Um, first thing this morning is a robbery which occurred at Cunningham's Pharmacy on Shop Street in Drogheda town. Happened uh, last Tuesday, the 19th of November, at 5.45pm. A male entered the pharmacy armed with a screwdriver. He went behind the counter and stole an amount of prescription tablets. Now, he had his face covered at all times, so very frightening experience for staff and customers in the pharmacy at the time. If anyone in around Shop Street did notice anyone hanging around outside the pharmacy, or indeed coming out of the pharmacy, around about that time, last Tuesday, 5.45pm, contact Rahadi Garda Station. Indeed, I'm sure there'll be a, a lot of people in the area at that time of the evening. OK, uh, we go to Kilcock uh, and a burglary that occurred. Uh, this happened uh, just yesterday. Yeah, um, again, a very serious incident, an aggravated burglary which occurred at a house at Kilmore, Kilcock, County Meath, yesterday the 25th of November at 11am. A male wearing a balaclava, a balaclava entered the house armed with a, it was like a pistol-type weapon and demanded cash. Now, no cash was handed over and the male fled the scene on foot. Now, direction of travel is unknown. The male is described as 5 foot 10 in height, stocky build in his mid-30s. Now, he was wearing a dark navy jacket and blue jeans and a pair of work, workman's boots. And again, we're just appealing for anyone in around the Kilmore area of Kilcock yesterday morning, 11am. If you notice something unusual, something strange that just didn't look right to you, right, uh, or indeed you've seen this male running away from the area, um, contact Garda Station at Dunboyne. Okay. Uh, to Summerhill, then, uh, this uh, is a story of criminal damage to a house that occurred uh, a week ago yesterday. Yeah, Gardy are investigating a criminal damage incident which occurred at a house. It was off the Summerhill Dunbine Road at around 4am on Monday the 18th of November, so the early hours of, of the morning. And they'd like to speak to anyone who may have seen any suspicious or unusual activity in the general Summerhill village area between 2am and 4.30am particularly anybody who travelled on the R156, this is the Summerhill Dunboyne Road, or the L2210, this is a local road between Summerhill and Batterjohn. If anyone's in around that area, around about that time, and indeed if anyone, any motorist was on these roads and have a dash cam that may have been recording, um, contact uh, Summerhill Garda Station on 046 or Trim Garda Station on 046 9481540 and indeed there, there, you also have the Garda confidential line whether it's any information on, on anything we talk about today or mm-hmm. any crime in general the, no, for, the number for the confidential line is 1800 one. OK and we can repeat that, that at the end of uh, the report today but uh, we'll continue now with uh, burglary that uh, occurred uh, this happened on Saturday in RD. 
Yeah, I brought you to a house on Tierney Street, RD, on Saturday the 23rd of November between 6.30pm and 7.45pm. Owner returned home to find the house had been broken into and the house ransacked. Now, entry had been gained through a side window. Um, so Gardaí are just appealing for anyone in the Tierney Street area of RD last Saturday evening, 6.30, between 6.30pm and 7.45pm. Again, if they notice anything unusual or anything strange in around the area, um, contact the Garda station in RD. Okay, we'll uh, uh, go to Dundalk for uh, another house uh, that was broken into. This is a burglary that happened uh, last Tuesday. Yeah, another burglary, unfortunately, to a house at Riverside Crescent on the Newry Road in Dundalk. Last Tuesday, 19th November, between 5.30pm and 6.20pm. So these burglaries are within an hour. Uh, people are just leaving their house for an hour and coming back. So in general, just appeal to people too that if you are leaving the house, no matter for what length of time, if you do have an alarm, stick it on and make sure doors and windows are, are secure before you leave. Now in this instance, the owner returned home to find the house had been broken into and again the bedrooms ransacked. So again, just appealing to anyone in the Riverside Crescent area, out the Newry Road, it's a bit busy road, um, plenty of shops and petrol stations in the area. Last Tuesday between 5.30pm and 6.20pm, if you notice anyone hanging around or anything unusual, contact the Garda station at Dundalk. OK, and uh, you mentioned uh, the confidential number. We'll repeat that now. It's one eight hundred treble six treble one. This is a number where people can uh, call and uh, leave information if they have information uh, for the Garda. They can leave a message, I think it is. They can, uh, yeah. It's, it's yeah. 24 hours a day, um, mm-hmm. 1800 treble six treble one. If you have any information mm-hmm. on any crime or indeed anything, any incident at all, you can contact that mm-hmm. number. Without leaving your name or yeah. your address or your contact well, details or anything like that, but you can pass on the information to the Gardaí. one 800 one But prevention better than cure, uh, as is always uh, the case. And uh, before you leave us uh, today, let's talk uh, about uh, preventing having your car stolen because uh, it may be cold, but it's not that cold as <laughs> I think some of us uh, know at this stage. Uh, certainly from years gone by, it's going to get a, a lot colder, no doubt. It's going to get colder and it'll be colder if you've no car. Yeah, it's colder if you've no car. Terrible to get up in the morning though and the car is freezing and uh, the windows are iced up and all that sort of thing uh, but there is a, a note of caution for There me. is, yeah, look at this, this last two weeks there's been a few hardy mornings where you've opened the curtain and you've seen Mr Jack Frost and been busy the night, during the night and your car's frozen over and we probably, most of us most of us have done it um, five or ten minutes before you leave the house you'll go out, start the car, leave the car running to de- defrost, mm-hmm. get the car get the warmed up, up yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. for the kids going to mm-hmm. school, whatever it may be, you'll go back into the house and you might come out five or ten minutes later and notice that the car's gone. Someone has had an early Christmas present. Someone in the area has spotted your car running, jumped into the car and stole your car. Talk about opportunistic, though. But they're out there. They're out there even mm. that time of the morning, mm. um, half seven, eight o'clock, whatever it may be. And it happens every year. And it has happened within the last number of weeks. Um, people have defrosted their car and come out and their car is stolen. So I just appeal to listeners... Um, please do not leave your car unattended while the engine running and the keys in it. It's an open invitation for some of these people. Okay, well, you have been warned, and thanks for that warning. Garda Paul Connolly of Dundalk Garda Station will return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Before we leave you today, though, let's uh, hear some more of uh, the comments that have been coming to us. Maggie is here with some more calls. Uh, what have people been saying in the last while? Yeah, we're going back to our opening interview with Thomas Byrne on the issue of children in Cartmacross being denied uh, in education. Mm. Tessa rang in to say it's absolutely uh, scandalous that these kids are being denied um, their right to an education. 
education. It has to be rectified as quickly as possible. These kids have a right to an education and government must provide it. Um, on the issue of the doll printer, Tom says, I can accept that the doll needs a printer with substantial um, capabilities, but oh my God, what kind of monster <laughs> machine did they buy at all? Who yeah. is in charge of pricing this project, he says. Well, I don't know, even if it, it was the machine that they needed at the price that it cost, I mean, <laughs> a little basic... Uh, well, Look at the, the dimensions. Size of the room. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 it's not yeah, rocket yeah, science. Yeah. I mean, fairness. you're obviously buying a very big machine. You mm. say to yourself, "Well, I'll, let's check it'll fit." Yeah, but I mean, it's mm. not a newspaper they're printing. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. it's not quite. Well, I think they probably would have a, a lot of stuff to print off. I'm not going to try and justify it, I suppose. Uh, mm. But uh, well, you're being a lot more understanding than some of the people who are ringing in this oh, morning. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, people are, are upset by it. I'm not, I'm not too surprprised. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's only a million euro for God's sake. We've yeah, loads yeah. of it. Yeah, and um, you um, know, in order to make it happen, uh, somebody uh, who owns a storage company uh, got paid for storing it. Yeah, unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, the builders were called in. They got some work out of it to knock down the walls and Leinster House mm-hmm. to make it fit. So, you know, every cloud. You keep going. Okay, yeah. Brown, well, okay. On, on the subject, David feels a bit differently mm. than you. He's seen another technology mess up from government. Hardly surprising given the shambles of the e-voting machines from a couple of years ago. Why are we surprised at what's happened um, when it comes to the doll printer? And I'll finish up on this one because mm-hmm. I know time is against us. Joe wants to know why government didn't wait for the Black Friday deals when they were buying their printer. They could have bagged themselves <laughs> a bargain otherwise. Okay, yeah, well, I don't know how surprised we are. If uh, you give me permission, I'll take uh, my time out of my cheek and uh, finish up there and thank you indeed uh, for that Maggie thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us uh, for that matter but that has to be the final word in the programme today because time has run out on us and before we go let me remind you that there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website lmfm.ie thanks uh, to Marie Kearns for producing Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Murray in the control tower I'm Michael Godwilling we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show 